Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. Last week, we did a little section during our service where we had some teachers come up. And Jordan and the elders have put in, put in this together for a while. Called it this time tomorrow. What's going to be happening next day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, etc. And how we are then commissioned as believers to be missionaries in the regular things that we do. And Jordan pointed us to say, reminding us that it's not what you do that makes it sacred or secular. It's why you do it. Is it for him? Is it for his kingdom by faith? Or is it for yourself? It is, that is scary because I am in the same boat. I can be reading scripture, praying even, and be in the flesh and doing it for all the wrong reasons. So remember, as you go out this week, you are doing the same things. It is not what you are doing, but why you are doing it. I have a confession to make, but I, I hope that it will be helpful. Um, we had this wonderful time up here. We, we saw them. We got to pray for them. Jordan and a couple of guys led us through prayers. I did not pray once for any of the teachers this week. Now, I, don't, I didn't lose my salvation or anything like that. Um, thank God we stand on the righteousness of Christ, which makes us his bride. But I want to remind you, Cornerstone specifically, this is the group that we're praying for this month. We want to pray for our teachers. Maybe take one or two of them and lift them up before the throne of grace to ask God to infuse their work with Christ-likeness so that they could then be missionaries to their kids, to their fellow workers, to their families, and all the different things that we talked about last week. So, I, am, I, I confess and I want to do the right things. We want to follow out then in obedience and love and pray for our fellow teachers that are in amongst us as well. This won't be the last time. We'll do other things as well. Where we'll highlight anywhere from teachers to plumbers to finance people. All of you are part of Christ's church being missionaries as you go. So remember that, and let us pray for each other and encourage each other in that truth. Okay, James chapter 2. Um, we're in 14 through 26. Last week we did 14 through 20. Um, this week we're going to pick up in 21 through 26. However, just like we always do, we want to gain the context. So I'm going to read from verse 14 down to 26, and we'll pray. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and if one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. Let's pray. God, we praise you, the God of the Bible, the God of all creation, the God of mercy and kindness to your people who are never able to present themselves as the radiant bride. Lord, you reached down in our deadness and gave us life. You breathed your spirit into us so that we might know you. And Jesus substituted, <laughs> came on the cross so that we then could have reconciliation with the Father. Lord, we deserve every bit of the punishment of the wrath of God that was poured out on you on the cross, and yet you took it. You experienced death and wrath and pain like we never could. And Lord, because of that, you have given us friendship with God. So we praise you today. You are that God. You are the God that has made us new in Christ. Lord, we come before you now, before we start this act of preaching, and, and we just ask that you would work in our own hearts. We ask for humility. We ask for ears to hear. We ask for perseverance so that we would not turn away from the text and go our merry way forgetting what we saw, but rather we would persevere and we would love and that we would follow and be steadfast in knowing you. Thank you so much for your word. We are humbled when we realize the gift that it is, that it explains and reveals you. God, may your blessing be upon the preaching of the word today as we worship Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, how many of you, whether in your job or perhaps in school, um, it may have been even on the playground, how many of you have ever been told or asked to prove it? Um, it's something that we usually... Uh, consider as to be kind of a snarky remark. But uh, the last job I had, I had a great boss, and this was kind of one of his mottos. He was great because he would let me do whatever I thought was the best thing for the company in these specific ways. We had to change a policy or maybe do a different procedure because there was something underlying it that it was really significant. He'd say, that's fine, as long as you prove it. Bring me the data, show me what's going on. He would make sure by an evidence-based approach that he wasn't getting into something that was way above his head and that he was going to have to answer for later. And so I'd say, hey, I think we should do this. He'd say, why? Oh, because of these reasons. Can you prove it? So I learned very quickly to make sure I brought my data to him, make sure I showed him the studies that were aligned with this and our practical and uh, very much needful evidence to show that this was legitimate. Because there's always, like, there's always some truth in a claim, right? There's got to be something. It's a possibility at least. But without any evidence, the claim is only that. It's a claim. That's it. Last week, we established the main point from verse 14. We started off and understood there is no salvation for those who say they have faith, but they don't have any works. We worked through the first two examples of people who lacked works. The first person, if you remember, was this one that gave this empty blessing of go, be, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And he does nothing about the, the food and the clothing situation. And then this other person, the demons, who believe, but they have no Christian works. And what happens to them? They shudder. 
James gives us his conclusions on these two examples. He calls the first person's faith dead, and the second person's faith, he calls it useless. Not a good commentary for the way that these people were acting and what they had to trust in, their faith. We also met the objector, I called him. He's one that, between these two examples, that tells us, like, I don't really agree with James. He's the one that gets in there and says, yeah, but some people have faith, some people have works, as long as you have something. You know, they're both good things. It doesn't really matter as long as you have one or the other. They're both good entities to have. James will not let this abide, and he's not okay with this objector. Instead, he is asking, do you want to be shown something different? That's where we're going today. He will show clearly that there's only one way to show evidence of your faith. There's only one way to prove it, through works. He says, I will show you my faith by my works. That's the only way that you can possibly see it, actually. That's the way you can prove it. We stopped last week with James asking the objector, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? We're going to pick back up, and today, James is going to answer that, and he's going to show us exactly that. He will show us the opposite of what we just saw last week. Instead of examples of a dead and useless faith, he will show us examples of living, saving, working faith. This is not faith that is useless, but faith that vindicates or justifies a person. He will show us that living, working faith always will be accompanied by works. They're not two separate entities. And if we treat them as such, we're mistaken. They are inseparable. In fact, this is such a strong point for him, he's going to use some theologically heavy language to describe this. Today we'll be faced with this kind of wording. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James will discuss the faith of Abraham in verses 21 through 23. And then in verse 25, he's going to point out the faith of Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute. So, in verse 21 through 23, we have a a kind of a three-step explanation of Abraham's faith working itself out. So, let's read it. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. In verse 21, that first one there, James states that Abraham was justified by works, specifically exemplified in offering his son Isaac on the altar. Then in verse 22, James gives us commentary on these actions. He shows that faith was working with works. And then secondly, we see that faith has completed by his work. Faith was completed by his works. In verse 23, James shows that this action, this obedience of laying his son on the altar to kill him, this was evidence of faith, his believing God and it being counted to him as righteousness. The actions justified him as one who had faith in God. There's no disputing it. Even at the end, he calls him a friend of God. His faith then was living and working faith. Okay, Chris, I mean, I got some questions. What does it mean that Abraham was justified by works? Explain that little beauty for me. What does it mean for faith to be active along with his works? Sounds like synergy to me. What does it mean that works completed faith? Something missing there? 
In what way were the Scriptures fulfilled? These are all good questions. These are the ones that I had as well. I want to know this. I need to figure this out and make sure I understand this so I'm not fighting against Paul here. We talked about that last week. We've got to figure out how James uses this word justified. We've got to start here. I'm going to say this again and again and again. You probably know where I'm going. We must read James in context. So, Let's think about how he uses this word. Remember in 18 what he said. His whole point he's hanging this on, he's challenging them to show me. Show me. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Prove it. I'll prove it. I'll show you my works. And that shows to you my faith. James is looking for evidence of a faith that is alive and actually working, a faith that works. This discussion already frames the way that we see James use the word justify. Think about this. It doesn't make any sense. If James is going along talking about actions that are consistent with the Christian faith, he's talking about it, talking about it, and all of a sudden he switches to a discussion on justification and salvation and conversion. That doesn't make sense even with his context. So what is he actually doing here? Instead, he's using this word to show the importance of these Christians their actions vindicating a person who has faith or justifying a person who has faith, showing faith through Christian works. At this point, we're ready to confront the issue. How do we talk about this word justify? Are James and Paul saying contradictory things? Are they against each other? Are they, again, we talked about this last week. Are they missing each other in the night? What's going on here? Like two ships crossing paths and not ever knowing, and they're actually saying two different things? I would say no, a resounding no. When Paul uses the word justify, we know his context is vastly different from what James is dealing with. It is clear that Paul is talking about the initial declaration of a sinner's innocence before God. We're talking about conversion. We're talking about justification, the point of salvation, and that idea of the initial declaration of a sinner's innocence before God. That's Paul. God does not declare a person righteous. In other words, he does not justify a person based on the works of the law. That's Paul's whole point, but rather on trusting him and him alone. We call this faith. That's what Paul is bringing up. James is not talking about this initial declaration of righteousness. He would agree with Paul's discussion on initial justification and salvation and conversion. He's not talking about the moment of conversion when a person is justified. When he, instead, what he's talking about is something bigger, something more ultimate. He's talking about the whole of Christian experience and specifically about ultimate salvation. He is then looking at the bigger picture. He's talking about the final validation of innocence pronounced on a person at the last judgment. The works that this person has produced shows that his faith was real. It shows, it validates, it justifies his faith as a working, living faith. These works then show that his faith was living and working. Now, the question for us, all as Protestants, is was it the works that paid the price for salvation? No. A thousand times no. Absolutely not. The works showed the reality of the relationship to the risen Jesus Christ. Faith. That's what the works show, that there's an actual relationship between God and man. In this way, James can say then that Abraham was justified by his works, by what he did. 
When God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar, Abraham trusted God and he took action. How do you know he trusted God? Did he say, yes, I trust you, and then didn't do anything? No, it's very simple. We see it right here. He obeyed, showing his faith. That's the whole point, guys. The idea here is that not that the works themselves can pay for your salvation. We all know that that's not true. That's why Jesus had to die. Otherwise, Christ's death is of no avail. It doesn't matter. What the works do, though, is show us what's actually going on. When God told Abraham to do this, he acted. He obeyed. We can literally look at Abraham and say, wow, he is showing me his faith by his works, by what he's doing. His faith was never separated from his works. His works naturally flowed out of his faith and trust in God alone. In fact, James says that faith was active along with works. What does that mean, is active along with works? Let me give you a, a little bit better, I think it's more helpful working definition here. Abraham's faith was working with his works. They're together doing this obedience. They're actively believing and doing. Both those things together in tandem. In other words, they are inseparable, working together in the act of obedience. In this act, you are seeing Abraham actively believe and act accordingly to that belief. And then he goes further, though. This is the other question. He says, and faith was completed completed by his works. This is our word that we've been talking about all the way through James already. It's that word teleos, the idea of completion or fulfilled or perfect or mature. This is that word that we found in verse 1, 4, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 4, verse 17, verse 25, and then in 3, 2. It speaks of being complete, whole, perfect, mature. He says that faith was completed by his works. Now, sometimes our first tendency when we hear that, we, we, we shy away from it. We don't really like that either. Because that means that maybe our faith in Christ was deficient. It couldn't quite get us there, so we needed to add to it works. And then if we do this and we do this, ah, now we've got enough to make it. That is not what's going on here. Again, that goes against from all what we just saw. So what does he mean then that it's, that it's these things together and that works are actually completing faith? What are we talking about? We've slipped back. If, if we think that those two things coming together brings us salvation as two separate entities, we've slipped back into the discussion about initial justification, which we know that can't happen, and then a gross misunderstanding of the value of our works as though they could pay the price for our redemption, which we know they can't. Our works cannot pay the price for our redemption. Only Christ can. And thus, we worship Him and Him alone. Okay, so then, Chris, how are the works completing the faith then, if that's true? Let's use the term the way that James uses it. We've already been starting to understand this idea, this teleos, this complete or perfect or mature. What is he talking about then? It's about becoming whole, being perfected, becoming mature in my faith as I grow. It is like this is the natural growth of faith. It brings me to this point. It begins to start to make us look like Jesus looked. We start to look then more like Him as our faith grows and as our works get involved in this and we start to obey Him, it rounds us out to more look like Jesus Christ. And now it actually helps us point back to understand what we mean by perfect. 
It's not as though the beginning part of our salvation was not enough. If you don't make it to completion over here, it's cut. Sorry, didn't do enough works. You're done. No, it's this idea of maturing, this idea of becoming perfect and complete in him. And so we see the same thing is true here, that when Abraham produces these works, he is completing or filling out or perfecting his faith. Again, not as though it's deficient at all. 1 John 4.12 is helpful for us in this. It shows a similar construction. He says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Same word, teleos. So the question is, is God's love not perfect? Like, is it not complete? Is it deficient? Absolutely not. That, 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 that doesn't make any sense at all, as though God needed us to somehow finish him out. Like, oh, good, I'm glad these guys obeyed, or else I never would have been perfect. My love would have been left imperfect. That's not the opposite side of this. Again, it's this idea of completing, fulfilling, uh, maturing, growing, and becoming complete. His love isn't deficient but rather it comes to maturity and completion in our actions of love to one another. In the same way, Abraham's actions or his works completed his faith. And what is the result? Look at verse 23. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. (laughs) Notice what James highlights. His faith He's coming back to bring up faith again, not just hammer works, 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 works. He's saying it's now been completed and fulfilled. The scriptures have been completed and fulfilled that Abraham actually believed. How do I know that? Because of his works. They show that. He was able to prove it in that regard. Abraham's actions proved that he did indeed believe God. His actions proved that he had faith and that these actions were bringing him to a greater maturity in that faith. His actions proved that his initial justification, the way Paul talks about it, right? His initial justification was based on real, living faith. And without hesitation, he stamps him as one who was a friend of God. What a wonderful title to have, which we know is also true of us through Jesus. He can show us all of this based on the evidence that Abraham's works Uh, of offering Isaac on the altar were evident. He can now plainly say with bold face, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What I mean by that is the way that you guys talk about faith alone. I have shown you Abraham, the great hero of Jewish faith, to be one who was vindicated by the performance of works. And if this is true, that Abraham was justified by works, I think it's fair to say that faith alone, the way that you talk about it, not having any works at all, think back of our context already, that faith alone cannot be proven, and thus it is dead. It's useless. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But in case you and I think that Abraham's faith and actions is unreachable, I mean, who could do the things that Abraham did, sacrifice a child and all this incredible faith? He gives us another example of faith and action. Verse 25, in the same way, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
all that we just learned about Abraham is said to be true of Rahab, a prostitute, a non-Jew. How? Because she had faith that worked itself out in works, in action. How do we know this? In Joshua 2, the Bible records that she received the Jewish spies, these messengers, into her house in Jericho and sent them out another way and protected them. She trusted God. If you remember Hebrews 11, is the hall of faith, right? You have Abraham in verse 17. He's known for his faith, but it's produced by works there. You see it right there. It tells exactly what he did. And then verse 31, Rahab shows up. Again, all of chapter 11 showing the faith that they had in God alone. If you read it, you'll find that they are documented here as people who had faith. Yeah, but how are we really to know that this non-Jewish prostitute had faith in God? How does the writer of Hebrews know that? The same way that we know that Abraham had faith, by her works. That's what shows us the truth. The only way that we know that she had faith, the only way for her to prove it, is the evidence of obedience and hospitality to these Jewish spies. Rahab then, it is good and right to say, was justified by her works. It makes sense. And if Rahab trusted God and acted in obedience to God's will, there is no excuse for any objector, how great or small, it doesn't matter. All Christians are justified and vindicated by their works coming from true and living faith. Their works will work along with their faith. James now closes off this discussion on faith, works, and justification with a return to his initial statement about the faith without works. Consider for a moment how he began this discussion in verse 20. He called this a useless faith. Now in verse 26, he will return this idea and he will use an analogy for us, a stark analogy that has us saying, whoa, I get it. Verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The analogy is simple. There is no life in a body without a spirit. All you have is a shell of a person. That's it. Likewise, faith. There is no life in a faith without works. All you have is a shell, a shell of a confession. That's it. They seem to make sense, right? That the body and the spirit can't be separated or, or if they are, you, you, you kind of have nothing. You just have that shell. You have what I'd say is deadness. You certainly couldn't call it alive. And so I would say it probably also isn't working, but rather is useless. So with this analogy, in, in one brief stroke, he shows us that faith without works is dead and useless. It's like a body without a spirit. It's just a shell. That's it. The same is true for the faith that doesn't have works. You cannot call your faith living, working, or real if you have no works. James has given us thorough teaching now. From 14 to 26, he's given us thorough teaching on the value of Christian works and how they relate to real faith in Jesus. The important question for us then, so what? What am I supposed to do with this? Now that we've come through this section, realizing also that there are no imperatives in 14 through 26. There's not one to do in any of this. It doesn't say, go and do that, go and do that, make sure you do this. Not one of them through this section. So what are we supposed to do with this if there's no to-dos in all of this? Let's pull back for a minute. 
Let's look at a little bit of a bigger picture. Let's consider what James has been telling us so far in his sermon. We've got three major parts, three major themes running through the book of James or this sermon, right? We have steadfastness, we have wisdom, and we have the sin of partiality. We've already heard James address all three of these, but as we look at this section, we've just completed 14 through 26, we have 13 verses devoted to the topic of a faith that works itself out. 13 verses in a kind of a small book, that seems like an awfully large chunk of Scripture if that's not supposed to be a major theme. Like, did we miss it? Like that's made one of the major themes here? I think that we need to answer the question then, if it's not, which I'm proposing it's not, then what in the world is the function of this here? From verse 14 through 26, there are no commands. Uh, I'm sure that you and I could probably supply a bunch of commands that would be good to kind of fill in the cracks. We know the right things to say. We've seen what Jesus said. We have all the 613 commands of the Old Testament, uh, and we could listen and do these things. I would like us, though, like we've talked about over and over and over again, to start working where James is working. Let's start with his sermon, what he is telling us to do. If we start there, we'll start to understand how this relates. I, I realize that one of the negative side effects of moving slowly through a book comes in our getting involved and interested and excited about some of the small details, and then we forget the bigger picture. Or it's hard for us to remember, okay, how to, where, was, where was I? How was I supposed to do? So my job is to kind of pull us back out. So let's pull out for a minute and see where his argument is. What is he trying to do? In the first, ver- first 11 verses of chapter 1, James began by introducing all three of his subjects, steadfastness, wisdom, and this poor and the rich, the potential for partiality. Then he goes back to show us the blessedness of the one who remains steadfast under trial. And he makes sure that the believer never blames God for sin and temptation. So that's steadfastness. Then he moves into an important discussion on receiving wisdom. We talked about this implanted word, actually receiving it, to the point that we're not just hearers only, but we're doers of the word explain explicitly what this meant. He talked about the things that God cares about deeply, this true religion, self-control, the tongue, caring for the helpless ones, and keeping yourself unstained from the world. This is our context so far. At the heart of this list, he mentions a specific group, those who are truly poor, the orphans and the widows. Now we come to chapter 2, and he is going to do a swan dive into the deep end of partiality. He is going to spend 13 verses kind of hammering this idea of partiality and the problem that there is with it. He shows that if you partake in the sin of partiality, discrimination, not showing love to everyone, putting the people with shabby clothes on the side of the wall or at your footstool, if that's who you are, not only have you done this and sinned against that person, you've sinned against the character of God, You don't understand the things that are actually happening around you. And probably most importantly to his argument is that you have broken the law of Christ. And now you stand as a transgressor. You stand as one who is a lawbreaker. And your end is judgment. It's only after all of that we get to verse 14 through 26, our passage today. It doesn't say anything for us to do So what possibly could he be doing with it? They are, we'd call them like informational verses, giving us truths. We would call this teaching or doctrine. 
He is giving us doctrine. The doctrine James is explaining and using here is that a living, working faith always has actions. More negatively stated and probably more powerfully in this rhetoric he's using, James is saying that if you don't have actions, your faith is useless and dead. That's the commentary on your actions. If you have no actions, that's the commentary on your faith. It's useless and dead. And you are not one that holds the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, back in 2.1. Verse 14 through 26 are not a new topic of teaching, like a whole new theme. They are a subsection of chapter 2, 1 through 13. He is saying, prove it. He is saying, I've taught on all of this stuff, but you're not doing it. And you say you have faith, and you're not proving it. And so the end is pretty grim. Not only is it judgment, you may not even have faith at all. Now your deception is even deeper. You thought you had faith, but you have no works. It's useless and dead. James has a very specific problem that he's addressing, partiality. He writes verses 14 through 26 in a very specific purpose to zone in on this people group, these Christians, who think that it's not necessary to treat all men with love, that they can choose who that they want to love and who they spend time with and who they give their money to and who they give good seats to. And what happens then is that they, what they really get is judgment. James has gone to great lengths to show them that their lack of love condemns them and that they must change. He has said, you say you're believers. Prove it. Go ahead. You think that your works don't matter? I'm telling you that they do matter. I say that because of your lack of love that you are showing me that you can't even prove it and that you actually are deceived. If at this point you are willing to maintain that you are fine, we're, like, we're, we're James hearers here. If we think we're okay because we have faith, because we have the right doctrine, we have, because we have to come to church, but we don't really have to show love to the rest of the world or everyone because we have faith, of course, then James says, again, that we are sinning against the character of God. We're not responding to the obvious truths around us. We are transgressors against the loyal, royal law and that we don't have faith at all. James is pointing out that the royal law is not being accomplished that what's happening is because of their partiality, they have broken the law of Christ. And specifically, they have not loved their neighbor as themselves. That's number two of the two greatest commandments that they're not doing. James is pointing out that when they show partiality and neglect love to a whole swath of people that they don't care about, what they're actually doing is not acting properly. They don't have now works. They are the man in chapter 2, verse 14. You don't have any works because you're not serving this whole group of people. You're not loving them. I don't need to worry about loving everyone. I've got faith. It's okay. I come to church. It's good. Loving God must produce love for your neighbor. That is what will happen. For truly to love God with your heart, soul, and mind will result in you being like him. And you being like him looks like you loving your neighbor as yourself. And you truly loving your neighbor as yourself looks like you're doing it impartially to all of the world, not just the people that we have contact with and feel normal about and we feel no problem loving them, to all the world. So our question then is, okay, then how do we start loving the world? How do we start loving our neighbor as ourself, all of them. 
There's a temptation for us to jump right to like a very specific application. We, we kind of want to jump right to the works. Like, okay, what do I do about this? What's the fruit of this? I want to jump right to that. But if you, like me, are guilty of loving the world around you with partiality, then there is one place for us to start, guys. The first and greatest commandment. Because if we have not obeyed the second great commandment, then we most certainly have not obeyed the first great commandment either. Let's start by confessing our sin to God and asking Him to give us a heart of repentance and love for Him. How else do you think we can do it? Ask Him that He would, that he would take your heart and He would destroy the idols. He would break the stony, rebellious heart that we have and He would infuse us with love for Him. Because I guarantee if that is true, then we will want to be like Him, which means love for our neighbor as well. So let us start in this place, confessing, saying the same thing that God says about our stinking, rotting sin, admitting it before him and saying, I've rebelled against you. This is who I am. It is only by your grace that you've shown me this, let alone that you can save me. And that is the wonder of the gospel. So confess your sin. But you may say, Chris, how, how in the world do I love God? I can't just like conjure it up and like get there on my own, can I? No, you can't. But it's not hopeless. How do we love him? We must, see, we must see God for who he is. If we can get a clear vision of who God is, we will adore him. We will see who he is and worship. That is part of our job as believers, actually, by the way, to show who Jesus Christ is, to see him for who he is, not to make him big, no, but to reveal how big he actually is. And so what we're called to do then is to partake in, behold, partake in who he is and behold who God is. How do we do that? So you're in a prime position today to do that. I'm not saying that you will, but you're in a prime position today to do that. You are here under the preaching of the word of God. Through prayers that have been spoken, through singing to one another, you are hearing truth and the glory of Jesus Christ who has come and made us his radiant bride and all the other songs and the prayers and the scriptures that were proclaimed to us, you are in a position where you can act and you can see who he is. So my admonition to you is listen and believe, asking again for him to show you who he is. We must see God in his beauty you, again, like I said, listen and believe when you are even here. Don't be a hearer only. Listen and believe the truth about who God is and wonder and worship. Talk about it with your community group. Talk about it with your spouse or your kids or your family. Talk about it afterwards, the, after the service. Go out to lunch with someone and talk about who God is. And as someone else talks to you, you're like, oh yeah, God is awesome. Oh yeah, wow, that is true. He is incredible. He is someone that I should probably worship and give my life over to. How do I know this God? I'll give you another idea. How about you read your Bible? It tells all about him. I know it's kind of funny, but I, I want to encourage you to read your Bible not for facts, not to know the timeline of Israel. That's good. That's good. We, we, we want to do that. Read your Bible to know and love and worship God. That is what it's all about. It reveals to us who God is. This is the God of the universe who wants a relationship with us. And he reveals himself through the word. And so when you read your Bible, first of all, read your Bible. 
But when you do that, take time to understand and read it so that you realize this is the God who is mine and who has saved me and worship and pray. Another thing, taste and see that he is good. Take some of these thoughts and meditate on them. Think about them. Talk about them with your kids or with your friends or with other believers or with a non-believer. Go ahead and tell them. That's called evangelism. Showing Christ to the world. It's amazing because he's amazing, not because you're so amazing. You're just revealing what has been revealed to you to shed light on Jesus Christ. And so as we do this, we realize who he is and we're drawn to love him with our heart, soul, and mind. But more than that, not more than that, excuse me, that's where we start. Simultaneously, we're called to be like him, right? That's the whole point of James here. It doesn't stop right there and we're like, we don't have to do anything. What is God like? He has reached into your heart and your heart and your heart and mine and changed us. We're the sojourners. We're the poor ones. We're all the ones that he's already talked about, the orphans, the widows, etc. And he tells us then to be like him. So we must act. We must show the love of Christ then for our neighbors indiscriminately. I don't care what they look like. You are to love them. They are image bearers of God and we're called to love them. I don't care if they're hungry, if they're rich, if they're poor, if they're Asian, if they're black, if they're white, if they're handicapped, if they're lonely, socially awkward, fill in the blank, guys. All of them were called to love. Jesus says, like I talked about last time in Luke 6, that we are called to love the ungrateful and the evil. That is not easy. I don't like to do that. I really don't like to do that. I have a wicked heart, though. Praise God, he has continued to work in me. So, what should we do? Some of you know exactly what you're supposed to do. You know what it means to go out and love your neighbor. And maybe it's actually your literal neighbor next door and you don't love them. Maybe you need to make that right and show love to them. I don't know what it looks like, but maybe you need to do that. Maybe to jump into an existing ministry. There are, we are closely partnered with Crisis Pregnancy Center to love on some of the ladies who are in a very bad position. And they need the love of Christ. The Union Mission is in our backyard. If you don't know how to love your neighbor as yourself, just start by that. Ask God to do that. Continue to pursue Him. Maybe go volunteer and just start loving people there at the Union Mission. Or maybe you're more creative than me and you can just come up with your own way and, and, and just love someone around you. Make up your own way of loving someone. That's good. Do it. Go do something, though. Don't let us sit here and walk away as once you heard a good message. Ah, oh, we, we got it. We got it. And then we do nothing about it. Because then the commentary on us is that our faith is dead and useless. So we've come full circle. Back to the main thing that James is calling us to. But if you remember how we started last week, I started with a whiteboard here. We had two verses on it, right? So what about Paul? We've already discussed a little bit this initial struggle between Romans 3.28 and then James 2.24. We've taken some time to discuss the differences there and what he means by justify. James and Paul are discussing two very different things. They have two different problems, and they have two very different contexts that they're dealing with. Paul is talking about initial conversion. James is talking about salvation at the last judgment. Their use of the term justification then is not contradictory. Again, we must take them in their context. But 
Why do I bring this up? To get back to that and end with an argument that we're like, oh, good, we, we solved that. Not at all. I think it's right for us to end with Paul because what we learn then, if we really read all of Paul, that he's very much in line with what James is saying. We just decide to choose and pick little verses that we want to deal with about it. Paul echoes James several times throughout his letters. He believes that faith will always play itself out in works of righteousness, yes, but even more particularly, works of love. Kind of sounding like James. Remember Philippians 2.12, Paul says that, excuse me, he says to work out your salvation or your faith with fear and trembling. And then in Galatians 5.6, there's no mistaking it. He says, for in Christ... And for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. That's the that's way of following the law. But only faith working through love. Paul gets it. The works of the law, circumcision or uncircumcision, that counts for nothing. That's not the point. Only faith working through love is what Paul counts. By the way, he's the one that coined the term law of Christ. It was Paul who did that. So we're saying the exact same thing as we point each other back to loving our neighbor as ourself impartially. He, like James, promotes the law of Christ and reminds us to work with all that God has given to us to love the world around us. Our faith cannot, empty, uh, cannot end then, guys, in an empty shell of a confession. It's dead. It's useless. We must love our neighbor as ourselves with no partiality. Let's pray. God, please, please, God, break our stony hearts, our proud, rebellious hearts that think this message isn't for us. Would you give us hearts of faith and repentance, hearts that love you, that see you in your text for who you are, and we say, wow, that is God. I am so small. He really needs to increase and I really need to decrease. And I want to make much of who he is. I realize who he is. God, I pray that you would draw our hearts that way and then that we would be like you in our love for the world around us, that we would not discriminate in our love, but we would rather give it to the brother of low estate. God, I thank you for your love for us in the fact that you even gave us the Bible. It reveals who you are. I thank you, Jesus, for coming to rescue us for spirit working in us, faith and repentance and sealing us. I pray that our time today would be to your honor and glory. And as we prepare for the Lord's table, God, I ask that you would prepare our hearts to worship even through this time. We love you and ask for your blessing in all this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.